The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understand the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Christ. Thank you, Leah. Well, good morning, everybody. It's already been mentioned uh, earlier in the service by Nate Tasker that we're beginning a series uh, on Colossians, which is Paul's letter to uh, the church in a city called Colossae. So, so every city is known for something, right? Um, Seattle, grunge music. Los Angeles, film and movies. Uh, San Francisco, technology. Uh, Nashville, uh, country music and healthcare, among other things. New York City, Wall Street and money. Boston, Ivy League education, um, um, you know, PhDs, and so on. Huntsville, Alabama, rockets and NASA. Um, so Colossae was a city a lot like Boston uh, in that uh, it prided itself and its residents prided themselves on their sophisticated command of philosophy. And so you could go around this city and you... you you wouldn't be surprised to see statues even and memorials to the more famous philosophers. And in comes Saul of Tarsus, who then later becomes the Apostle Paul, uh, who as Saul of Tarsus had been educated under the most sophisticated rabbinic school, uh, uh, under the Rabbi Gamaliel, but also as Saul of Tarsus had been educated at the most sophisticated Ivy League-like universities, uh, you know, specializing in the classics and specializing in, um, in the wisdom of the philosophy of his day. He became a master of religion, the arts, rhetoric, 
philosophy, wisdom of the age, and so on. And so now he's writing uh, as the Apostle Paul from prison, as he did many of his letters where he'd been put in prison for his faith. And uh, he is saying to Christians in this avant-garde, sophisticated, urban center, you can be too smart for your own good. You can be smart and educated and not wise. And what, I, what I'm after on your behalf is wisdom. Wisdom to recognize that Jesus Christ is supreme and Jesus Christ is sufficient and every bit of smarts, every bit of intelligence and wisdom that you may have comes from Him. All truth, all beauty, all wisdom and insight comes from Him and ultimately points back to Him as the center of all things. And so what he's after is this. You know, in the same way that he might, you know, tell somebody, don't hang your hat on your career or don't hang your hat on your family relationships or don't hang your hat on your net worth, he's telling this city full of wise, highly educated PhD types, don't hang your hat on your wisdom. Uh, And reminds me when I read Colossians of something that C.S. Lewis wrote in his essay, The Weight of Glory, where he says that it seems that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased, Lewis says. So, Paul's saying similar things here. Don't be so pleased with your sophistication and your wisdom and your education and your PhDs and all the rest when you've got Christ who is sufficient and who is supreme. So, four treasures that Paul wants to get through to Christians here and everywhere, including us, that Christ offers as the supreme one. Mercy, progress, joy with thanksgiving, and then ultimately completion. And so, so mercy will be the first one. He writes in verse 2 these familiar words, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then he goes on to remind them that God our Father is also the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're one with Him. Then in verse 5, he says, in Christ, the gospel truth has come to you. You didn't chase it. You didn't look for it. It came looking for you. And it chased you down. You didn't find it. It found you. Then verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, so that we're now beloved also, in whom we have redemption, forgiveness of sins. So there's there's a lot there. He's talking about the gospel, but he's also interchanging the, the, the two words, gospel and mercy, as if they are one and the same, because they are. Mercy is a gift that comes to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It it, it creates a whole new world for us of understanding that because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
Those who believe in him are now completely forgiven. So no amount of guilt, no amount of shame can ever be held over you legitimately anymore. And then secondly, what comes to us is what the Bible calls the robe or clothing or attire of Jesus Christ's righteousness, his blamelessness, his perfect record, his, his sinlessness is, is a blanket or a wrapping paper or uh, a, 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 a clothing that, is, that, 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 that covers the people of God in the sight of God so that as far as God is concerned, if it's true of Jesus, it's also true of you. It's as if you walked on water. It's as if you fed the 5,000. It's as if you gave your life completely for the sake of God and others. It's as if, because you've been credited with everything that Jesus has done. And then the final thing is love, belonging. You're not just tolerated, you're cherished. You're, you're not just, um, you know, you don't just have a seat reserved for you at the table of Christ like you might have a seat reserved for you at a restaurant. You're expected there. You're desired there. You're wanted there. And there's always a seat with your name on it at the Lord's table because you belong. You're part of His family now. And that can't be undone. So these are all mercy gifts. And, and mercy is is, is something that's given to those who either don't deserve it because of sin or who can't attain it because of weakness and because of sorrow. So sin and sorrow are the two things that the mercy of God goes after, and He finds us in those places. And he, here's, the, here's, the, here's the wonderful thing about the mercy of God. The only thing that you have to do to have it is to need it. The only thing you have to do to have the mercy of God is to need the mercy of God and live in the awareness of that need. It costs Jesus everything. It costs us nothing. Now, this is where you know, I love on you know, Member Sunday to just remind us of some of the vows that were made. Namely, the first one. Okay, awareness of mercy is when the first member vow becomes less perfunctory and more visceral. Less a hoop you've got to jump through in order to get your names on the rolls of a church and more your life experience. That I acknowledge myself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure, and without hope except in his sovereign mercy. Those are promise, that's a promise that we make. And then, of course, the one that comes after that is the great release valve where Jesus becomes the complete answer to that. He is mercy. He doesn't just give mercy. He is the mercy that we need. Now, to some, the Bible says that this whole concept of mercy is the aroma of death, and that's, that's especially for those whose lives are so well put together that they are able to live for maybe a long period of time under the illusion of control over your life. You're able to purchase comfort in ways that most people aren't. You're able to, to purchase away things like inconvenience and, and trouble and struggle to a certain extent until that diagnosis comes or until you, you age out of your comfort 
eventually that time comes. But in the meantime, it's the aroma of death. For those who don't have the one thing you need in order to be a recipient of God's mercy, namely an awareness of your need, the Bible says it's going to be the aroma of death to you. It's going to smell, it's going to smell bad to you, but it's going to be the aroma of life to those who are most fit to receive the mercy of God. And those who are most fit to receive the mercy of God are those who recognize how unfit they are. I'll, I'll cover that a little in a little bit more detail in a minute. But just for this point in particular, I'll, I'll wrap it up with a quote that, that our student ministry director, Mac Purdy, shared with our staff during our staff devotional this past Monday. It's a quote from Thomas Merton, who's a, a Christian mystic, and he says this, only the man who has had to face despair is really convinced he needs mercy. Those who do not want mercy never seek it. It is better to find God on the threshold of despair than to risk our lives in a complacency that has never felt the need of forgiveness. A life that is without problems may literally be more hopeless than a life that always verges on despair. Let me reiterate that one more time. A life that is without problems may literally be more hopeless than a life that always verges on despair. Why? Because there's something about being in the low place that triggers you to run to Christ. And, and, and when you run to Christ, you recognize that He's already run to you. You don't have, really even have to do any running to get to Him. He's right there. He's even in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, mercy. The second one would be progress. You know, verse 6 says the gospel is bearing fruit, but it's also increasing among you. And then in verse 10, he says, you, Colossian believers, you keep increasing in the knowledge of God. This is a good thing, to desire increase of what God has already begun in you, to long for, to pursue increase of the work that God has already begun in you. It's like it says in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident that the God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. We're all unfinished people. We're all incomplete works in process. There is never, at least in this life, there's never a time where any of us will be able to say about ourselves or each other, that person has arrived, or I have arrived. There's no more growing up to do. There's no more improving. There's no more becoming more like Christ because I have arrived I mean, some of the most wonderful reminders of this are people who are well into their 70s and even in their 80s still learning, still pursuing, uh, you know, still listening to people half their age, you know, talk about these things because they'll take truth wherever they can find it. Because we're always unfinished until Christ returns. So one of my great heroes that I never had the personal privilege of meeting is a man named John Stott. And John Stott was uh, a minister in the Anglican tradition uh, in, uh, in England and uh, made a decision, young, young in his life and younger in his ministry, made a decision to never get married so that he could have more time to know Christ and to write about the things of Christ to share with 
the church to share with believers so that they could know Christ in a rich way. He gave his whole life to this, lived in this tiny little flat, uh, you know, gave away essentially almost all, if not all, of, of, of his resources that came in from book royalties and everything else. And there are all these, these anecdotes also about the private life of John Stott uh, that, that give credence to his public ministry. Uh, all kinds of stories that people who knew him personally, you know, have come out of the woodwork and start telling. And one of those is a, is a man named Rico Tice who, who would look to, you know, John Stott as a mentor. And there was one time where Stott, this titan of, of, of Christianity, uh, reaches out to Rico Tice, you know, his, his, a junior minister at the time, and says, I need you. And, and so Rico Tice shows up at Stott's flat, and Stott is laying on the floor, uh, and, and agonizing, weeping. And, and, and Rico Tice says, how can I help? And he says, well, the, the, the pain in my hip is excruciating, and so I need for you to pray for the pain in my hip. And also, even, even harder than that, even worse than that, I was short with a member of my staff today. And I need you to pray and to lead me to repentance. This is a man who has been at this for decades, calling on a younger man to lead him back into those two virtues that Stott always says are the most important virtues, humility and holiness. Humility and holiness. Even this titan of the faith recognizes himself as being unfinished and in need. You know, assent as a believer feels a lot more like descent. We've talked about this before. Like, if you want to know that your faith is strong, part of how you know that your faith is strong is that your faith feels weak. The defining feeling of faith as Joe Novenson, pastor in Chattanooga, has said, is not the feeling of strength and triumph, but the feeling of dependent weakness. I mean, the Apostle Paul talks about this in his own life, his, his own self-awareness. As a, as a young, early on uh, Christian, he refers to himself as Paul, an apostle. And then later on, he refers to himself as Paul, the least of the apostles. And then later on, he, he calls himself Paul the least of all Christians. And at the very end, he's a bottom dweller, you guys, the chief of all sinners. Does that mean that Paul's getting worse as time goes by? Actually, Paul's getting better. The fruit of the Spirit is, is more animated and amplified in his life with each and every passing year. And, and yet, part of the fruit of the Spirit is the fruit of humility that grows and grows, that increases in his life where he recognizes the gap between the holiness of God and, and his need to continue growing in holiness and the gap between the humility of Jesus and his own pride. It's an increase of awareness and an increase of virtue and repentance and faith that, 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 that keep happening all at the same time. That's what the increase of faith looks like. The third would be joy with thanksgiving. So, um, so Patty and I recently, my wife Patty and I recently, were, were talking with one another, and, and, and I think it was she that asked me, 
when's the last time we went to a concert? I can't even remember. It feels like it's been so long. And, and so, so last week um, made up for some lost time, right? So, so we went to three of my favorite bands, and they're, they're, they're three different bands, three, they're favorites for different reasons. Uh, one is my favorite contemporary band uh, right now, Need to Breathe. And so we went and saw them midweek, which was really great. And then last night was the Killers, and it was killer. I went there with uh, Pastor Russ Ramsey, who leads uh, our Cool Springs uh, uh, congregation. We, we both love just the songwriting and the showmanship and everything about the Killers. Um, and then sandwiched between them was Pearl Jam, okay? So a little bit about Pearl Jam. Iconic band. Uh, they, they have been described as the the Beatles of the X generation, of which I am a part. Um, and uh, you guys, my brother, uh, my brother Matt actually, you know, flew here, bought a ticket to see Pearl Jam with me. He's never been able to see Pearl Jam. And this is legit, bona fide part of his story. My brother says that Pearl Jam and Nirvana saved his life. And what he means by this is that he went through almost a decade of, of, of a deep abyss kind of darkness, of, of the kind of darkness of, of just not wanting to continue another day. And he said he had the, the, the music of both of these bands, Pearl Jam and Nirvana, on, on loop, on repeat for, for about a decade because it was only when he played music by those two bands that he felt not alone in the world and that he felt understood. And, and all the angsty place they're coming from. So you guys, Pearl Jam was one of the reasons, one of the things that kept my brother alive so that he could convert to Christianity uh, and get out of this dark pit that he was in for, for well over a decade. Pearl Jam, okay? Um, one of the greatest moments of the concert, I was sitting next to that guy right there uh, as well. Um, Ed made the tickets happen for us. And so, and so they turned the house lights on and I'm seeing all these people behaving in ways that they would never behave at work, probably wouldn't behave at home, probably wouldn't behave even at, at most sporting events. They were just letting loose, like, ah, you know, just, just the whole room, like 20, 25,000 people, like they crammed it, like behind the stage, on the floor, everywhere. And I was thinking to myself, Colossians, what a picture Except here we've got the Apostle Paul with no crowd energy to boot off of, with no discernible music coming through his ears except the hymns that he's singing, probably off-key, alone in a prison cell, and yet he can't help but let loose in ways that might even feel embarrassing. To some. Oh, aren't you embarrassed for Paul, that fanatic in prison, and he, he behaves like like he's got hope, he can't help but let loose in, in, in similar ways that the crowd at, at, a, at an epic, iconic concert let loose. He gushes. We always thank God. We always thank God. I'm thanking God right now in here. Verse 11, we're enduring with joy. In the eyes of the world, this man is a loser. In the eyes of the world, this man is at the lowest point that anybody could, could be falsely accused, thrown into prison, doesn't belong there, and yet he's in no hurry to get out. 
He's just joyful. What on earth? What's he smoking? He's inhaling the aroma of Christ. Is what he's doing. You notice, too, if you read the letters, there's several of these Bible books that, that are letters from Paul when he's in prison. You read through those letters, you won't find a single instance where he says, oh, it's so hard in here. Get me out of here. Pray me out of here. He never asked for that. It would be certainly legitimate for him to hire a lawyer to get him out. Of course it would have been a legitimate, legitimate for him to do that. It would have been legitimate for him to say, oh, this is hard. It's miserable. It's dark and musty and moldy and dirty and filthy, and I don't belong in here. It would be completely legitimate for him to ask people to pray. But that's not his… for whatever reason, his heart is elsewhere. More than he wants relief for himself, he wants humility and holiness for free people who are too smart for their own good and too comfy cozy for their own good to the point where they might not even feel the need for the one who is making him more alive in prison than they are in the free world with their PhDs and Ivy League educations and all of that cash and influence. It's as if Paul, a poor man, is saying, you rich people don't even know what rich means. You smart people don't, don't know the first thing about what wisdom means. True wealth, true wisdom, you can be joyful in any place. And so his prayers and his words are fixated on what God is up to in the lives of other people. Listen to these words. When we pray for you, since we heard of your faith and the love that you have because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. It's what Tim Keller calls the freedom of self-forgetfulness. It's how C.S. Lewis defines humility. He says humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is the antithesis of narcissism. Humility is being able to look outside yourself to the one who made you and to, to others, to your neighbor. But there's more to this. He also stewards the kind of suffering that everybody else is spending their lives running away from and trying to avoid. Instead, he sits in it and stewards it. Instead of becoming a trigger for despair in Paul's life, his suffering becomes a theater for defiance against things like the flesh, the devil, and the pride of life. There's nothing more powerful than joy in the face of crap. And that's his life. And he goes on in, in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, look, there was, there was gifted to me the word is grace. There was graced to me, charis. We get our word charity from that. It's the same Greek word that's used everywhere else in the Bible where we get the word grace. There was graced to me. There was gifted to me a thorn in the flesh from Satan. What the enemy intended for evil, God is using for good to defy him. He's giving Satan some rope in my life, but only enough with which to hang his ugly self and nasty self. 
So there's giving me this thorn. I begged God multiple times to remove it from me, and his answer was, my grace, my charis, my charity is sufficient for you. My charity is coming to you in the form of a satanic thorn. My charity is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. That is why I will delight, Paul says, all the more in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and difficulties for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. So, so Ann Voskamp wrote this beautiful book that I know many of you have read. Maybe somebody in here published it. It's called 1,000 Gifts, and it's about giving thanks in all things. Highly recommend. So here's an excerpt from there. One life loss, she says, one life loss can infect the whole of a life. Like a rash that wears through our days, our sight becomes peppered with black voids. Now everywhere we look, we only see all that isn't. Holes lack deficiency. So this is a woman who lives with the memory of watching her own sister die in a farming accident. This is a woman who knows what it means to live fully in a tragic place. And part of her processing of her own sister's tragic death was to write an entire book about what it could look like to thank God in in the face of all things. She continues with this, I know that there is poor and hideous suffering. I have lived pain, and my life can tell. I only deepen the wound of the world when I neglect to give thanks for early light dappled through leaves and the heavy perfume of wild roses in early July and the song of crickets on human night, uh, on humid nights and the rivers that run and the stars that rise and the rain that falls and all the good things that a good God gives. The secret to joy is to keep seeking God where we doubt He is. The secret to joy is to keep seeking God where we doubt He is. You know, one time I was in Denver, Colorado, sitting on a, on, a, on a deck with a friend who had moved there a month before to start a new church. He'd been there a month, and I said, how long did it take you to forget that you live in all this beauty? He said, probably about two weeks. And I said, what do you do about that? And he said, well, I have to remind myself every single day of where I get to live. And I verbalize it to somebody so I don't forget where I get to live. You know, King David in the 21st, or 24th Psalm says this. He says, there's only one thing I want, you guys. One thing I'm after. I am not going to be far too easily satisfied like C.S. Lewis talked about. I'm not going to sit in a mud puddle in a slum when an ocean is available to me. But you've got to fight for it. You've got to fight for it. So David says, there's one thing I'm after. One thing will I seek. One thing will be the object of my disciplined attention, that I may gaze on the beauty of the Lord, whether in a cave alone or whether in the temple surrounded by the throng of the people of God, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and behold Him in His temple. It sounds a lot like being fully present with a local church every single week and being fully present with Jesus every single day. Disciplined noticing. Disciplined noticing. Putting our eyes and the eyes of our hearts 
As Nate Tasker sometimes says, our ear lids, positioning them so as to not forget the things that we have such easy amnesia about. Lastly, completion, which leads us to the Lord's table. So, one of the reasons why I'm a Christian is that Pearl Jam is not enough. Even though I relate to Pearl Jam like I relate to Eeyore. Y'all, I think Eeyore gets a bad rap. I think we need more truth-tellers to say out loud, things are really hard. It's not all roses. We're all going to die. It's going to happen. We need more than this. We also need Tigger to come in and say, but there's all this, and there's all this too, and all this, all these good and happy things. But when you put Eeyore and Tigger together, you know what you get? Jesus. Christianity. It's the only cohesive worldview and philosophy that's ever existed on the face of the earth. Here's, here, here was the problem with, with, with building your life around philosophers. You had to go one direction or another. You either had to go the direction of, of realism without optimism, which is where the existentialists and Stoics have gone, or you've got to go in the direction of optimism without realism, which is where the hedonists and the Epicureans have gone. Neither direction is complete, which means both directions violate the honesty of the human heart and the real experience of human life in a fallen world. But Christianity puts realism and optimism together, enabling enabling people under Christ to live fully even in tragic places, like Paul does. There's creations grown for the ER in us. All creation is groaning. We're groaning. It's because we're homesick. We're not home yet. We know we've been made for another world, or at least a different version and a redeemed version of this one. And yet there is hope, which, you know, points to Paul's call to endurance and patience with joy, because homesickness is also a reminder that there is a home, and Christ has done everything necessary in order to get us there. And meanwhile, he drops crumbs on the ground and gives us sips along the way of reserves from the future kingdom of God to remind us and to strengthen us and to give us hope. 